And I could not be more pleased about today's morning show because I am privileged to be speaking with a very, very gifted and award-winning writer by the name of Reina Grande. And I'm sure many of you know her for a very, very fine memoir called The Distance Between Us, a blockbuster bestseller. And she is responsible for two marvelous novels, Across a Hundred Mountains and Dancing with Butterflies. Her latest book is yet another memoir, a sequel to The Distance Between Us. It's titled A Dream Called Home. And uh, in this book, Reina Grande continues to share with us her very poignant and complex life story. Uh, She was born in a very poor community in Mexico, and uh, while she was still quite a youngster, uh, both her father and mother left Mexico for the United States in, in search of a better life. And ultimately, her father came back to retrieve uh, uh, Reina and, and her siblings and to take them uh, back to the United States, although it took several attempts before finally they were able to indeed return to the United States. Um, there was much that was difficult, however, about her childhood. And uh, that is part of of the story of the distance between us. In A Dream Called Home, she tells the story of going off to college and pursuing her dream of becoming a professional writer and uh, of the intense sense of displacement which she experienced and the many challenges and frustrations and and even heartbreak that were were part uh, part of that pursuit. Of course, we know because we hold this beautiful book and her other books in our hands that ultimately she was successful in pursuit of this dream, but uh, it was no small matter to uh, achieve such a dream, and uh, her story is such an important one, and of course, uh, it is especially timely against the backdrop of the uh, immigration crisis, which uh, is uh, confronting the United States right now, and uh, splitting our population in such painful and bitter ways. Again, this new book is called A Dream Called Home, published by Atria. And Reina Grande, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be speaking with you. Ahead of us talking about this latest book, uh, I would like to talk to you a little bit about uh, your relationship with the English language and uh, your extraordinary skill in uh, in writing in English, which uh, is, uh, in, in, in some ways at least, your own second language, and uh, but obviously one with which you, you have such a, a, a high uh, level of comfort and confidence uh, a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just say a word about the circumstances under which you learned English and to what extent you think that is a really significant factor in why you are the writer you are and why you write in the way that you do versus mm-hmm. whether or not English would have been your language from the very start of your life. Right, right. Yeah, well, when I arrived in the U.S., I was nine and a half, and I started fifth grade, and I didn't speak a word of English. And it was very traumatic for me because the school I went to didn't have any um, 
English as a second language classes for immigrant kids like me. It was a sink or swim situation where I was thrown into a classroom where it was English only, and my teacher put me in a corner of the classroom because I spoke Spanish, and she practically ignored me the whole entire year. And I sat in the corner feeling ashamed about being a Spanish speaker. And because of that shame and that trauma and that rejection I experienced, I I worked really, really hard to learn English because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a corner being ignored. And I learned English and I sacrificed my Spanish. You know, the more I learned English, the less Spanish I spoke. And English became my dominant language. And this is why I write in English, because it did become my dominant language. And I I learned so much more in English than I did in Spanish, since I I only had a third grade education in Spanish. So um, for me, my relationship to both of these languages has been very complicated because even though I, I speak English better than I do Spanish, I feel guilty about it. You know, I feel guilty. I feel that I have betrayed my mother tongue. And when I speak Spanish, it I, it doesn't come out as well. I There's so many words I don't know sometimes, and I, I stumble a lot when I speak Spanish. And of course, when I go to Mexico and I speak Spanish down there, right away people ask me, they say, hey, are you American? And and I say, no, I'm, I'm Mexican. But then they don't believe me because they said that they could hear America in my voice. So it, it has been a, a complicated relationship that I've had to both languages, but I like Writing in English because I don't have to think about the language when I write. I, I just think about the characters and I think about the story that I'm telling. I also like to do my own translation whenever possible because it's my way of of using my native tongue in my work. Mm-hmm. Though my translations are not perfect, you know, they, they do have mistakes, but that's just the way I speak Spanish. So. I heard in a I heard in an interview that you did with uh, someone I don't remember now uh, with whom uh, you were asked a question about that about the fact that uh, you had done your own uh, translation into Spanish of of one of your uh, earlier books but for a subsequent book uh, the publisher uh, was able to persuade you that it would perhaps be a better idea yeah. for a professional translator to be brought in mm-hmm. to to translate whatever book that was into Spanish. Yeah. I wonder if you would mind sharing with our listeners uh, the interesting story you tell about what it felt like for you when you picked <laughs> up your own book, which someone else had translated into Spanish. It's a great little story. Yeah, it was so traumatic. Because it was, it's actually a dream called home that my editor. So the pre the previous to, book to this one, your first memoir. No, the 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 first memoir, oh. the distance between us. I translated it. So that's and this book the, now. This new one, uh huh. With the new one, with a dream called home, my editor suggested that we hire a professional translator because she she wanted a quick turnaround on the book. And I knew that I was going to take my time doing it, and, and she wanted it done, you know, quickly. 
and professionally. So so we got a, a translator in Mexico who who did that translation, and then when he delivered it, I was really shocked because there were so many words in there I, I didn't understand, and I kept picking up the dictionary to look them up. And it was shocking to read my own work in my mother tongue, translated by someone else, and I didn't understand a lot of the vocabulary that he had used. And at first, I felt um, really bad. I, I I I felt so insecure at 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 feeling that there were so many words I didn't know, and 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 so much that I had lost in learning English. And then after, you know, I I realized that he had used very fancy vocabulary and that's not my writing my writing is very simple you know simple prose in english simple in spanish and he had used some very very fancy vocabulary so i this i asked my editor if i could redo it because my voice was not in there and and i felt that it wasn't authentic so she allowed me to dig into the manuscript and and to change the vocabulary to to the way I speak. It took me uh, 200 hours to redo it, <laughs> but um, I did. I, I finally did, and, and I'm, I'm so much more happy now with the translation because I was able to, to give it my voice. Hmm. I, I want to ask you one other question quick question about this, and then I promise we will dig into your book. Uh, this actually, though, is a question that stems from something you write uh, in in your uh, your newest book, A Dream Called Home. Uh, for a time, while you were uh, a student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, you earn much-needed extra money uh, working as a tutor. And uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, you were writing with uh, you were working with students uh, for whom English was their first language. And here you were as a tutor where English was your second language, tutoring them in how to properly use and affect their own language. And you write, it amazed me that I was mostly teaching students whose native language was English, but who had worse grammar than ESL students and could not write a decent paragraph in their native tongue. I wonder if you could just talk a little <laughs> bit more about what that experience was like and and if that experience in and of itself maybe taught you anything, maybe about yourself or about the gift of language or the importance of being able to use language well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it definitely made me feel more confident in my English skills. Because I realized, you know, as I, as I was tutoring all these students who were born here and who whose first language was English, and, and I saw their shortcomings and I saw how much they struggled to write in their own native tongue, it it made me feel more confident in, in, um, in the way I had learned English so well that I could actually write better than a native speaker. And it also um, helped me appreciate, too, how I had learned the language by taking English as a second language classes, because 
we get a different kind of instruction that native speakers don't get. You know, we we really do um, get taught the the grammar and uh, con- verb conjugations and the rules. And I feel that that's very helpful in learning the language. And I know that when you're a native speaker in your English classes, you don't really go there, you know, in terms of of conjugations and uh, of verbs, irregular and regular verbs, and and just the, the the grammatical rules and things like that. So I I I got a boost in confidence in in my English, which I really needed because I was always very insecure about, especially about speaking English. You know, I was very insecure about my accent. And I grew up in a community where sometimes kids would make fun of me by the, the because of the way I spoke English. So I decided that I was actually quite good at it and that I shouldn't be ashamed anymore about the way I spoke English. Hmm. We're speaking with Reina Grande about her latest book, A Dream Called Home. It is a memoir and a sequel to her best-selling first memoir called The Distance Between Us. That book told primarily the story of, of her childhood, her early childhood in Mexico, and then the experience of moving uh, to the United States and uh, what those early years were like. This latest book, again called A Dream Called Home, uh, essentially begins in the year 1996 when you, as uh, maybe a 20 or 21-year-old young woman, uh, are on your way from Los Angeles to the University of California, Santa Cruz, transferring from a community college to this much larger uh, state university uh, with the intention of, of continuing your, your, your education. Explain what this move was all about and why it was uh, even more dramatic and perhaps even traumatic than, than it otherwise would have been in terms of what it represented uh, in the relationship yeah. between you and your family. Right. It, you know, it was, it was such a big um, deal for me, that move to Santa Cruz, because I was the first in my family who went to university. And the trip up north was very exciting because I was beginning this new journey. I was going to make history in my family by being the first to set foot at a university. But it was also a very sad moment for me because when I left Los Angeles, things had fallen apart with my family. You know, my my father had banned us from his life because his wife didn't like us. My stepmother didn't want us around. And he, she, um, she told my dad, you know, I don't want your kids around here. So send them away. And, uh, so my relationship with my family was, was in ruins basically when I left. I wonder if you could also oh, say a quick word. Sorry, I wonder if you could also say a quick word about your older siblings and uh, some of the difficulties that they had already experienced by this point, which had to weigh yeah, on you heavily. So, right. By the time by the time I went to college, both of my older siblings had dropped out because of very personal reasons, you know, uh, personal challenges that they had, and also because 
life at home was very unstable with my dad. My dad was going through through some terrible times. He he was an alcoholic, and his alcoholism had gotten worse at that point. He was also very violent. He had a bad temper, and my siblings got tired of it, and they just wanted to get out as quickly as they could. And, you know, they, they ended up um, sacrificing their college education just so that they could find a way to get themselves out of out of my father's house. Mm. And my sister dropped out first, and then my brother dropped out right after her. So when it was my turn to go to college, my father was very disappointed in my siblings, and he took it out on me, and he said, well, you're going to drop out too. You're going to be a failure too, so why even bother? So when I went to UCSC, I didn't have any support from my family. I I was scared because I didn't know if I had it in me to be a university student. And and the first time that I got there was just so sad because the students that were moving into their dorms almost all of them had their families with them. You know, they had their parents and their siblings, their grandparents, even their dog came along to see them off. Mm. And I felt so lonely because mm. I showed up with, with, with no one, you know, um, not, not a single member of my family came with me. You, you write at one so, point, you write at one point uh, overhearing parents asking their, their children, do you need anything else? Do you need anything mm-hmm. else? And you, you, you wondered to yourself, do these students realize how lucky they are? And yeah. I, that was such a poignant thing for me to read. My life, my professional life outside of this radio station is teaching at a local liberal arts college. And um, when it is the start of the school year and you see all the hustle and bustle of students moving in, we just naturally assume that, that all of them are moving in in the way that we typically think with loving parents and sometimes grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles and so on, all uh, participating in, in what should be a fully joyous day. And I think uh, I, I had never really stopped to think about the very real possibility. In fact, it's probably a certainty that there are at least a small handful of students who are there mm-hmm. very much by themselves on their own without that system of support that is so easy to take for granted because for so many people it's just kind of a natural given of life. And of course for you, that in this very important moment was completely absent for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a uh it was a bittersweet moment for sure. Where I felt really proud and at the same time I felt very sad mm. and alone. And the the first the first few weeks were tough for me. Right. I want to ask you about something beyond the fact that no one had told you to bring sheets and blankets and so on. So you walk into this dorm room and it's a empty bed and you I mean have to figure out what to do and the even the grocery stores are strange and everything else is strange and despite the fact that uh you know, there were certainly kind people around you trying to be friendly. You just felt so 
alone and so uncertain of, of yourself. But of course, wrapped up in all of this was, in a sense, a, a bigger reality that is important for us to talk about. You write at one point in your book, because I was a child immigrant, my identity was split. I often felt like an outcast for not being completely Mexican, but not fully American either. The border was still inside of me. Physically, I had crossed it, but psychologically, I was still running across that no man's land. I wonder if you could just talk a little further about this really unsettling truth about your own sense of identity, the sense that you did not feel completely Mexican nor completely American, and the the most important ways in which this affected you uh, through these later childhood years and, of course, also in this moment when you had uh, uh, gone on to, on to this new adventure. What difference did this part of your sense of identity make in, uh, in this being so difficult for you? Yeah, well, identity um, was very complicated for me because as a child immigrant, when I arrived in the U.S., my identity was not fully formed yet. I was still a little girl um, trying to, you know, figure out who I was. And as the years went by, I worked really hard of trying to learn how to be an American and how to be accepted in this society. But I was constantly feeling rejected no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried. I felt rejected because I was too Mexican. And yet, you know, as the years went by, I, I and I realized I have lived here longer than I lived in my own native country. And when I, whenever I would go back to Mexico, everyone treated me like an outsider, and they treated me like I had been corrupted by being Americanized. So in Mexico, I was too American, and in the U.S., I was too Mexican. And neither culture wanted me, and neither country welcomed me. And I would often ask myself, well, well, who am I, and where do I belong? And uh, I was always, you know, feeling that I, I was cut in half, because half of me uh, was trying to hold on to my Mexican roots, and the other half of me was trying to, to assimilate it, to be accepted into American society. So I did feel split in half. And then I started to kind of um, seek refuge in the hyphen between Mexican and American. And I was there for a while trying to figure out how can I learn to navigate both of these cultures, both of these countries, where I don't feel like an outsider in both. Mm. And it took me a while, you know, to figure it out. And one thing that really did help was at the university, uh, I met a, a Chicana professor there who really helped me to understand uh, what my identity was. And I had I had grown up thinking that being an immigrant was something I should be ashamed of. And she helped me realize that being an immigrant was something I should actually celebrate because she said my immigrant experiences had made me into twice the person 
that I was when I first arrived here. And she said, now I was bilingual, I was binational, I was bicultural. And she said, you are not less, you are more now. And I thought that was such a beautiful thought, you know, to know that now I was twice than what I used to be. Mm, that's and a beautiful after thought. after that, yeah, after that, it, it helped to reframe my thinking in terms of, instead of being ashamed, I'm going to celebrate Mm. these experiences. I wonder if part of what you experienced, what what you were just talking about, has very much to do with where in Mexico you came from. Uh, You describe this small community of uh, Iguala as a place of shacks and dirt roads where most homes did not have running water and electricity, Uh, was unreliable. Uh, Do you think that was significant? Was that a significant part of your struggle to embrace who you were, the fact that uh, where you came from was, as you just described, a a place that was, at least in so many ways, uh, a place of of poverty and difficulty? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely the place where I was born had a deep impact on me and in, in, um, in my identity because, first of all, I, w- I was born into the, the, you know, the poor class in Mexico, the lower class, working class, and, and not just like regular poor, but extremely poor. You know, I was born in a shack with dirt floor and, and no running water. And my family didn't really have a lot going for itself. Um, there was a lack of education in my family because everybody had to start working since they were little. My grandfather was illiterate. He didn't even get to go to school, so he couldn't read or write at all. And my father only went to the third grade before he was taken out and put to work. So all we knew as a family was just working, working, working all the time for very, very um, small wages. And and there was a lot of hunger, every every kind of hunger. So we struggled a lot. Mm-hmm. And my hometown is very poor. It's a... Uh, in the state of Guerrero, which is the second poorest state in Mexico, and now it's actually also the most violent state. So people there are not just dealing with poverty, now they're also dealing with a lot of violence. It's where um, the 43 students who disappeared in Mexico four years ago disappeared in my hometown. So it's become a place where 43 college students could just disappear overnight and nobody knows what happened to them. Mm, Yes, a tragedy from uh, 2014 that speaks volumes about uh, what that place is like. Something else I want to ask you about your your childhood, Uh, again, because this is mentioned in this newest memoir, A Dream Called Home, which primarily focuses uh, on on your your young adulthood and, and later adult years, but Obviously, you you talk about where you came from and your earliest years as well. At one point, you write, uh, well, first of all, you tell us that by the time you were five years old, both your mother and father had left Iguala for the United States in pursuit of a better life. And you write, my childhood was defined 
by the fear that my parents might forget me, or worse, replace me with children born in the United States. That had never, ever dawned on me. I mean, I've I've sometimes thought about what it would be like to be, a, in a sense, a child left behind uh, as parents went off uh, to some on unknown, far-off place uh, in pursuit of some kind of better life. But I'd never stopped to think that this kind of a fear could be something that these youngsters might live with. Can you describe that a little further for us and, in a sense, what the ramifications were of having to live with that kind of really unsettling and, I should think, heartbreaking fear? Yeah, um, I'm going to say that even today at, at my age, I'm 43 years old, I'm still dealing with that. You know, I'm still dealing with that trauma of of growing up afraid that my parents would forget me, that my my parents would abandon me forever, and that my parents would replace me. Um, I, I still deal with that. And it's such a scary time for children. You know, when you're a little girl, you need your parents with you. And as a little girl, it's difficult to understand why your parents have left. You know, I didn't know anything about the bad economy in Mexico, the peso devaluations, the crisis that was just looming um, before us. I I didn't know know any of those things. I just felt that my parents had left me because they didn't love me enough to stay with me or to take me with them. And it took me a long time to realize that it was because they had loved me that they had to leave. And later, uh, when my mother, you know, came here, some months later, we got a call from her and she told us that she was pregnant and that there was going to be a new baby in the family. And I was so afraid um, that my parents were going to to forget about me now that they were making new children here born in the U.S. And I also felt, um, I felt that my, my new baby sister was better than me because she was born here and I was Mexican. So I felt inferior to her because she was American born. Hmm. So these were some really complicated feelings for a little girl. Mm, no kidding. Feeling. Yeah. And of course... And I rem- yeah, I remember when I met my little sister for the first time. She was almost two years old the first time I laid eyes on her. And I was so shocked that, that she was brown because I had heard that in the U.S., you know, there were all these blonde hair, blue-eyed people and then I, I meet my little sister. I'm all like, wait a minute, she's brown. She's even darker than me. Hmm. We're speaking with Reina Grande about her new memoir called A Dream Called Home. We've just now been talking about uh, some of the uh, issues she confronted as a, as a youngster, but the memoir mostly deals with her life from college on as uh, she left Los Angeles where uh, her father and siblings were living at the time 
in pursuit of her dreams to become a writer, uh, enrolling at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And the book opens with some of the experiences that she had there. I heard you say in uh, a little promo video that you uh, created about about the book, uh, at one point you say, when you are facing the darkness, any little bit of sunshine helps you. I really love that phrase. I wonder if you could say a word about these years at college, which we've already talked about how difficult it was for you mm-hmm. without any support system of family at all. Uh, for you to be there on your own, money tight, confronted by so many brand new realities. Um, what were a couple of the most important and valuable little bits of sunshine, as you put it, that mm-hmm. made a difference at this really challenging point in your life? Um, I'm going to say the first the first one was uh, experiencing my first protest. <laughs> That, mm-hmm. that was a, a really wonderful moment for me because I had felt very alone at the university because it, it wasn't very diverse and I wasn't seeing a lot of Latinos on campus. But then when the protests happened, we were protesting Proposition 209, which abolished affirmative action. And, and then I saw all of the Latinos I had been looking for, and they were all there protesting in Spanish even, and it was a beautiful moment to feel that I have found my community. I had found the people I had been looking for, and there they were. So that that made me feel so much better, knowing that they were there and that, that I started to make more Latino friends, and and I started to, to take classes um, like, you know, Spanish for Spanish speakers, Chicano literature, so, so I finally felt um, more comfortable there hmm. on campus. Uh, also, my my Chicano literature professor was another little ray of sunshine because she introduced me to Mexican authors that I had never heard of, and she continued to um, inspire me and encourage me to keep writing. So that was very helpful as well to have that kind of support. Um, I also uh, had a job on campus that I really loved. I was working on the paint crew over the summers, and I learned how to snake drains and how to paint and patch walls and um, how to refinish furniture, and I really loved that job. I I felt I was learning some very useful skills that even to this day as a homeowner I'm able to do. I could lay tile, <laughs> which is really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> wow. So, um so these were things that that I that I had on campus and one of the best things that happened too was that I had a lot of support from the school in terms of my creative endeavors. Um I applied for grants to create uh, student films or to publish a collection of short stories to to put on a theatrical performance of my stories and I would get grants and um, and I was able to to do all these student projects because of the support I received on campus 
and and that that was so important in my development as an artist. So I definitely felt supported there when I when I when I made the effort to to look for that kind of support, mm. I would receive it. Right. Actually, one of my favorite examples of a bit of sunshine is when you are talking about uh, very very early on when you are I think riding around on a city bus. You've maybe gone to a grocery store and someplace else and maybe a secondhand retail shop to find some cheap sheets Mm -hmm. and so on. And on the bus trip back to campus, you see through the window uh, a Mexican grocery store, La Esperanza. And this was just, I mean, you, you couldn't even get off and you weren't even exactly sure where it was, but just it was just so nice for you to know that such a place lived uh, existed there close by where you could uh maybe get some things that would really remind you of of home uh mm-hmm. and even the name of it meant a lot to you la esperanza yes it means hope and i really needed a little bit of hope absolutely <laughs> when i saw it it was there and it was so nice to see a Mexican supermarket because uh, it had been so shocking to me going to the markets there in Santa Cruz. I had never even heard of tofu before. I mm. had never heard of um, deli meatless deli meat. That made no sense to me whatsoever. And and quinoa wheat germ and wild rice, all of those things were so foreign to me. And when I saw that Mexican supermarket, it was it was such a relief to know that I could go in there and actually find food that I knew how to eat. Hmm. One thing you mention about, uh, and I don't remember exactly where in the, in, in the book this comes, but um, you tell us that when you were quite young, so I think even still back in Mexico, you write, no one ever asked me what I wanted to be. And it was really shocking to read those words because I think most of us that live here, and especially if we are blessed to grow up in a, in a loving home with loving parents, uh, that question gets asked a lot, and one can't even imagine not asking that question or being asked that question yourself. Uh, you know, what do you, what do you want to be? And uh, you say, no one ever asked me what I wanted to be. Is that uh, a function of, of, of Mexican culture? Is that often a question not asked? Or is that a function of growing up in poverty where, unfortunately, that kind of question almost never occurs to people to ask? Or was it more specific to your home? Uh, I, I wonder well, if you've thought about that. Yeah. I want to say that it, it might be a function of poverty. Because I know that, you know, kids that grow up in well-to-do families, they do get asked that question because since they're little, their parents start making plans for them, right, about um what school they might go to and and they they grow up with the idea of when they go to college not if they go to college whereas i think with us who grow up in poverty it's always an if you know if you ever go to college 
if you make it past high school. Um, and and you don't usually get asked those kinds of questions, at least in, in my family. We never really talked about what we what we were going to be when we grew up. Nobody really went around asking us, what do you want to be? And definitely even in middle school, high school, I was never asked those questions. Um, so I didn't know. I didn't know what I could be. And I was fortunate that when I got to community college, my English professor was the first one who ever said to me, Reina, have you ever considered pursuing a career as a writer? And I was so shocked when she asked me that. And because it had never crossed my mind that I could be a writer. And um, and she said, of course you can. And she gave me all these books written by Latina writers. And she said, look, if you know Sandra Cisneros can do it, you can do it too. <laughs> so it was thanks to that teacher that I began to have a future goal of one day being a published author. Mm. I should think that one thing that had to be difficult for you and difficult for those who were teaching you and mentoring you is the fact that you were clearly someone with gifts uh, but with perhaps limited experience and like all young writers someone you know with a gift that needed to be nurtured but part of being nurtured uh, is not just being told you have talent, but also being told your writing can be better, <laughs> that what yeah. you're giving me is not perfect, uh, and, and here's why. Here are some things that, in a sense, are wrong with how you are writing. And I should think this is a situation in which it's really difficult, again, in both directions, for you to receive such criticism however gently delivered and not receive it as some sort of rejection of, of who you are or a rejection of your dream or the, that you have a right to write or something. And, and, and then and those delivering that, I mean, finding a way to, in a sense, preserve your dream given your, your fragile sense of identity and the fact that you were in such a difficult situation. I mean, I really think that in and of itself is something that was so complex, and I'm grateful that you emerged from it as, as well as you did, but I imagine mm-hmm. in the moment it was not easy at all. No, it wasn't easy. Um, I, you know, I, experienced, I experienced many moments of rejection, and I felt that people were not understanding where I was coming from, they were not understanding my experiences because it was so foreign to what they had lived through. So what I learned from those rejections was how to fight for my stories and how to, how to stand by my truth and my reality, no matter how anybody um, put me down or, or criticized me for it. And that actually came in really handy for me, developing that 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 sort of strength, because when I was pursuing a career as a professional writer, I experienced a lot of rejections from editors, and and it was it was hard, but I had learned 
and not to let rejection bring me down. And I persevered, and and that's how I managed to finally get published. Hmm. That reminds me of another favorite line from your book when you write, My biggest virtue and my biggest flaw was the tenacity with which I clung to my dreams, no matter how futile they might seem to others. That is such an intriguing notion of that tenacity being both a virtue and a flaw. How would you have people think about that in their own lives? Because I think we tend to think of tenacity as only a virtue. We don't often <laughs> think of it also as potentially a flaw and, uh, and, uh, or, or how it can be both, <laughs> perhaps even mm-hmm. simultaneously. How would you have maybe especially a young person untangle that whole matter of being tenacious? Yeah, well, I think I think it's really good to be tenacious, but it's also good to to understand when what you're going after might not be good for you or might not be something that that you should spend all of your energy on if it's not happening. And I think for me, you know, one of my my biggest desires and goals was to have a good relationship with my parents. And that was a flaw in that I was so caught up on trying to have a good relationship with them that no matter how many times they pushed me away, I always came back and tried again and I tried again and I tried again until I really had to finally realize that that desire, that drive to achieve this goal was actually not good for me. I was spending so much energy on trying to accomplish that. And and I saw finally that I needed to just walk away and let it be, that there are some things that no matter how hard you try are just not going to happen. So so those so those were some moments when definitely me wanting to achieve goals sometimes worked a little against me in that I was too stubborn at times to realize that hmm. that that was perhaps a goal that I should just just let go of. An important lesson learned, and fortunately, you tenaciously hung on to that dream of becoming a professional writer, and of course, that is what you have done, and a very successful one at that. And uh, writing, which you write at one point was an act of survival, has, uh, of course, uh, brought you tremendous success, and maybe even more importantly, brought tremendous inspiration to so many people who've read your marvelous works. This latest book, again, called A Dream Called Home, a memoir published by Atria and the author, Reina Grande. Reina Grande, I congratulate you on yet another superb book, and I thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show to uh, tell your amazing story. Very, very best wishes to you. Oh, thank you so much, and I wish you a really wonderful rest of the year.